0: of you can be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 in your Bibles. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll, you'll find today's text on page 329. 329 of the black Bibles. I would encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 130. What we do here at North Hills is each week we take a passage of scripture And we work through that passage of scripture, trying to understand it well and to apply it to our lives in a practice that many refer to as expository preaching. We don't have anything to offer you, only what God's word says. And so this morning, as we do each week, we'll endeavor to understand this text of scripture. Psalm 130. We've read it together. We have sung it together. And uh, let's ask for God's help as we approach this text. Our Lord, quiet our hearts now as we humble ourselves before your word. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts and open minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words and penetrate our hearts with them. May we recognize our own need of you and know that as we do, you delight in forgiving. We offer these moments to you in Christ's name. Amen. This passage teaches us that God's people can have confidence because of his forgiveness. God's people can have confidence because of his forgiveness. I was perhaps junior high, maybe upper elementary school, and I we kind of lived in a rather rural, kind of suburban rural area. And as many of you, when you were growing up, you you started driving before you started driving. You know what I mean? Right? Your parents would take you out, your your dad would take you out kind of in the cornfield and say, all right, you get in and you would drive, you know, down the the trail or maybe on some of those remote country roads. Like kids nowadays don't know what that is. That's what we started learning to drive before we were. So we had a pretty good size backyard. And it had this six-foot seater privacy fence that went all the way around it. And there was a gate that was big enough, barely, to fit a vehicle in and out. And my dad said, okay, we were doing some yard work. We had the pickup truck. My dad had this neat little uh, S10 uh, Chevy 4x4. And I love that little pickup truck. And uh, we were doing some yard work in the back. And dad said, okay, you can turn it around and line it up with the gate, but don't drive it through the gate. I'll drive it through the gate. Okay, so I get in, my dad actually went into the house, I get in, I turn the thing around, and I, but I wanted to get it nice and lined up with the gate, so I, so I backed up. And as I was backing up, I didn't see the tree, oh, no. right? And so I start hearing, you know, the clattering of branches and the, the scraping down the side, and I froze, right? I just didn't know what to do. And so I let it, like, crease down the side of the truck and, you know, a, a branch reached out and grabbed the mirror and threw it on the, on the hood. And I, ah, so finally I had the presence of mind to hit the brake, but it was too late. There was already a crease down the side of that thing. I looked on the, on the hood, and there are, you know, branches on the hood and the mirror laying there. I went nuts. I went screaming and crying up to the house. Ah, I, I wrecked the truck. I wrecked the truck. And I was, ah. So my dad, very calmly came out of the house and uh, kind of saw the situation as it was. He said, okay, well, let's go look at it. Just as calm as could be. Um, Now, he may not have been calm internally, but he was acting calm on the outside, right? So he walked over and said, you know, looked at the situation. He said, well, you know, that'll buff out. The mirror, we can can get a new mirror. I was shocked. I thought I was dead. You know, I mean, I thought he was going to kill me. But, but I, I approached the whole situation without confidence because I thought I was a goner. Well, my dad was very forgiving in that situation. He was understanding the fact that I was learning to drive and, and hadn't, I mean, I had obeyed. I'd done what I was told, uh, you know. So um, I did not approach the situation with confidence because I wasn't sure of his forgiveness. I wasn't sure that the situation would, would all be okay. Well, the psalmist in this passage is reminding those who are God's own that they can approach God with confidence. They can approach God, w- w- knowing and being assured because He is a forgiving God. God's people can have confidence because of His forgiveness. The psalm is classified as one of seven penitential psalms. Now, that those when we talk about. Uh, Uh, laments, and penitential psalms. That's not language that we use often, but this really is a prayer on the psalmist part of a plea for forgiveness. In case you're curious what the seven penitential psalms are, they're 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, this one, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. You'll also notice in the heading a, uh, a, a title that we've referred to before that this is a song of ascent. Does anybody remember from our last song of ascent? What is a song of ascent? We've got to wake you up this morning. It's warm in here. We've got to wake everybody up. What, what's, a, what's a song of ascent? Remember? Yes, sir. Excellent, excellent. And Jerusalem was always up, remember, right? No matter where you're coming north, south, east, or west, it was up because it was up. It was high. And so as they would ascend to Jerusalem for worship, they would sing these psalms. Well, this is one of those, and this in particular is what is is classified genre-wise as an individual lament. You know, believers don't lament their sins anymore. It's just not the thing that's fashionable to do in our modern American society, where everything is is happy and good and never anything negative. But the psalmist actually finds joy in the forgiveness from from crying out to God, recognizing his sin. We'll see that more as we go through it. And we see here that God's people can have confidence because of his uh, forgiveness. One other quick little structural note that uh, I want to point out to you, the psalm actually doesn't move in a linear fashion. It doesn't move one, two, three, four, it actually circles back. It's a circular pattern. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay, so the whole psalm could be divided in half, and it really organizes very neatly. Verses one and two, verses three and four, verses five and six, verses seven and eight. I mean, that's the structure, all right? And each of those halves, verses one through four, and verses five through eight, can be divided again in half. And the second half answers the first half. And so I'm actually, my outline is going to look like that on the screen um, because it's not really a one, two, three, four. It's like a A, B, A prime, B prime. If you study poetry, you know what I'm talking about, right? So the second half answers, answers the first half. So that get, now that you have the kind of that pattern in your mind and the, the main teaching of the passage, let's look at it closely. Uh, we see in verses one through two that we must call out to God because of our sin. So in verse one, the psalmist says, "Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord." All right, the imagery is someone who is in in the deepest part of the sea. They they obviously can't put their feet on ground, and they are they are too far away to swim to safety. Now, can you imagine yourself in that situation? Maybe maybe you're at the beach one day and you you're really feeling strong that day, and you. You take your little little boogie board and you go way out into the depths and all of a sudden a wave hits you and it crashes on you and you lose your, your flotation device. And you are out, you're awake, it's too far to swim. And what do you do? I mean, you're going to drown out there. You're starting to get tired, you're treading water, and there is just no way you can make it back to shore. What do you do? Well, you look over there at that lifeguard stand and you say, Right? I mean, that's the exact imagery that the psalmist is using. I'm out in the depths, and all I can do is cry for help. Out of the depths, I have cried to you. And in fact, this this idea of being in the depths, the depths of the sea, is a a metaphor that the Hebrews would commonly use for despair, for for distance from God, for, for hopelessness. You know, this is what sin does. Sin separates us from a holy God. And the weight of our sin is upon us. We feel sometimes that sense of hopelessness that that I want to do better, I want to change, I want to be pleasing to God, but I'm in the depths, I can't swim that far. This reminds me um, of Romans that says we are all sinners. We all sin and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We None of us meet the righteous expectations of a holy God. It's a, it's a canyon that we cannot jump across, to use a different analogy, or we are in the depths and all we can do is cry out for help. There is that sense of hopelessness that the psalmist actually starts with, in fact, this hopelessness is taken even further. Notice in verse 2, he acknowledges the need for God to intervene. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. This is another word for that yearning, for that calling out to God to intervene. So the psalmist is acknowledging his sin. He is acknowledging his own inability to save himself. He is, as if it were, calling out to the lifeguard because he is going to drown. Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord, please hear me, because that is my only hope. You and I must call out to God because of our sin. Well, he continues that in verses 3 and 4. Which, which teaches that we must find forgiveness because of our sin. Notice verse 3, he says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities. This word mark means to observe, to keep careful record of. And God is able to do that, is he not? I mean, God knows all that we do. What about the psalm that we looked at some time back that whether I, or I cr- go to the furthest part of the sea or deep in the ocean or, or the heights, anywhere I go, he knows, he sees. All our sin is known to him. And we reminded ourselves that that is both a, a comfort at times and a conviction at times. God knows. He has has a perfect record of everything that we do. And Lord, if you keep a record of this, if you mark my iniquities, sinners cannot stand before a holy God and argue their own case. And that's actually what he says in the next phrase, right? He says, oh Lord, who could stand? You ever hear or read uh, here on the news or, or read in the newspaper that a certain case is going to court? And that the court is hearing that case and they are determining standing. Have you ever heard that before? Right. What are they doing? They're eva- when they evaluate standing, right? What they're saying is, does this person even have the right to come into this courtroom? Does this person even have the right to, to come and present the case to this court of law? A lot of times we'll hear it in the context of Supreme Court. Does the person have standing? Well, this is actually a judicial term that that the psalmist is using here, and he's like, we don't have standing. We can't come into the courtroom and argue our case. We don't even have the right to stand before him and make excuses for our sin. That is how, how hopeless our situation. Lord, if you mark iniquities, if you keep record of iniquities, and we know you know all, who has the right to even stand before you? because of our sin, we are unworthy to stand before God. We can't stand before him in prayer. We can't stand before him in worship. We can't stand before him in any way. Now you say, well, this is not a, this is not a happy sermon, Pastor V. We'll see in a moment that really this is the, this is the avenue to understanding forgiveness is when we know what our place is before God. We actually have to find forgiveness because we are sinners separated from a holy God. You see, our world says, well, you know, you be you. you just be, be proud of who you are. Don't, don't feel ashamed or feel guilty. But here's the thing. Humanity intuitively knows that something is wrong. Something is, is broken within us. Something separates us from a holy God. The solution, the the way that we deal with guilt is not to to deny it. It is not to have a therapist tell you, it's okay, it's not your fault. The answer is to find forgiveness. Now, our world loves the, the word forgiveness, but the world refuses to acknowledge our need. For forgiveness. And it's it's ironic because there is no such thing as forgiveness if there is no such thing as sin. In other words, the first step for us is recognizing our own hopelessness, our own inability to save ourselves, to, in the words of the psalmist, call out from the depths. You see, no amount of denying that we are sinners will assuage the thirst in our soul to be made whole to be made right and so the psalmist actually starts here ah but then then we see a light don't we verse 4 there is forgiveness with you so after the psalmist acknowledges that he is hopeless that he is helpless that he's unable to save himself that he is unable to do anything about his sinful condition He says, there is forgiveness with you. Again, this reminds me of Romans. For the wages of sin, right, the punishment for sin, what we deserve because of our sin is death, eternal death. Do You realize this morning that every one of us, myself and you, we are born in a state of separation from God because we are sinners. We are sinners by birth and we are sinners by our continued rebellious choices. And the fact is that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Now, religion comes along and says, "Well, you, you be a good person. You be better than the next guy. You do more good than you do bad, and your good will outweigh your bad." But we all know, and the Bible teaches us that our good will never outweigh our bad, because we are broken. We are sinful. Ah, uh, but the wages of sin is death. But what the gift of God? Is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the psalmist says, there is forgiveness with you. The word forgiveness does not imply that God overlooks, that he forgets about our sin, that, that he sweeps, his, sweeps it under the rug and acts as if it never happened. God is a just God. Forgiveness is actually the antidote. It is actually the solution to the problem of our sin. And of course, as we move into the New Testament, we see God's plan for redemption, for forgiveness, working out in the person of Jesus Christ, who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, so someone else had to save us. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life, not the life that you and I live, and he offered himself as a sacrifice. He died, was buried, and rose again the third day so that, we, so that he could offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. The psalmist continues to develop that. He says, there's forgiveness with you. Well, great. Now it's happy. Now it's good. If God then is forgiving, then there's nothing to worry about, right? I'm just going to kind of cruise through life. Is that what this means? I mean, is this kind of the attitude of, well, you know, it's cool. I think God gets it. I mean, you know, you don't expect you to be perfect and stuff, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what the psalmist is conveying because notice notice following that. He says in verse 4, what? There is forgiveness with you so that, you know, it's all cool and I don't have to worry about it anymore. No, he says there is forgiveness with you. Now, isn't this interesting? That you may be forgiven. Feared. You see, the right response to God's forgiveness is not the attitude of, well, I don't care. It's not, well, God's going to overlook it. The attitude that corresponds with forgiveness, with understanding what God has done on our behalf, is, is the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord, the respect that we ought to have to walk in His ways. He holds our sin against us no more when we find forgiveness in Him. But forgiveness is not a blessing to be taken lightly. For in fact, it cost Jesus his very life. It cost God his son who offered him on our behalf. And so those who are forgiven ought to love and fear God. If we take seriously the guilt of our sin, we will take seriously the grace of forgiveness. What does Titus say? The the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God is not this ticket to kind of cruise through life laissez-faire however we want to. The grace of God is a means by which we can be made right with God so that we can then live for Him in the fear of the Lord. So the psalmist presents forgiveness not, not as an opportunity to do whatever he wants, but rather as a means by which he is made right with God and then lives in the fear of the Lord. Salvation is a serious and costly transaction, although that it, it is free for the taking to those who come to him in faith and repentance. It is not free in the sense that God himself paid through the person of Jesus Christ. In Romans, the apostle tells us that his goodness Uh, tells us of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so I wonder this morning, have have you recognized your own helplessness? Have you recognized your own inadequacy before God? Has there ever been a time in your life where you have realized that your good works, your religion, your righteousness, the things that you do, the the fact that you're better than your neighbor, none of that will afford you standing before the supreme judge of the universe. But you must cry out. You must ask for help, for, for God's forgiveness, for His healing in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever recognized that, in fact, the, the, the means of forgiveness is recognizing that you are a sinner. When we present the gospel to people, that is often where we start, right? With the understanding that God shows us clearly in His word that we, we are sinners. We are separated from God. Because that is the, the first step in understanding our need that we might be forgiven. So I wonder this morning, are you saying, well, yeah, I mean, I, I want to be a Christian, I, I, I want to be, be forgiven of my sins, oh, but I'm not that bad. I, I don't really, you know, need that much help. I, I just need some, you know, some tweaks around the edges. My friend, if you're in that condition, you're, you're not where the psalmist is. The psalmist is saying, I'm unable. The only thing I have is the hope to cry out to God. My friend, let me plead with you this morning, if there's never been a time when you have personally recognized your inability, your own sinfulness, today is the day to repent, to turn from your way to God's way, to depend completely on Jesus Christ who is your only hope of salvation. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have, as many of you have, cried out to God at some point in your life. You have repented of sin and turned to Jesus Christ. You've been made new. You've been born again. My Christian friend, do you recognize that every day you do not approach God in your own merit? I mean, does it strike you on a regular basis, even when you gather for worship on Sunday morning, that the only reason we can worship God is because of the work of Jesus Christ? Or, or do we often get this idea that, you know, I kind of got my ticket punched, I'm good to go for heaven, and now I got it from here, thanks. We often have this attitude that, that all we needed was like God to reset, you know, hit the reset button, and that's what salvation is, and, and now we're, we're kind of okay on our own. I mean, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he talks about being in Christ. Our identity is now in Him. And anything good that you and I have to offer as believers is because of the work of Jesus Christ. So the psalmist here is, is undoubtedly a, a follower of God. He's undoubtedly a, a believer. Yet as he comes to God in repentance, he, he's recognizing that even on an ongoing basis, he's inadequate. And that should be the attitude of, the belie- of, of us as believers this morning. All I have to offer is Jesus Christ. All I have is Christ. That's it. Do you realize every day that it is not your own merit, the merit of Jesus Christ? Well, we've seen the dilemma. We've seen the need for forgiveness that the psalmist presents to us in the first half of the psalm. And now, and now it's like the, the light is dawning in the second half of the psalm. In verses 5 and 6, we see that we can expect forgiveness when we confess to God. He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. Now, there's two words in verse 5 that if we don't understand, we miss the entire point of the psalm. So, if you didn't get anything else about this psalm, you need to understand these two words. Here they are. The first one is to wait. We see it twice in verse 5. You see that? And the second word is the word of hope. We see that also in verse 5, the end of verse 5, and then we see it again in verse 7. Now, these words are used several times in the Old Testament. They actually have a very strong overlapping meaning, but the the meaning is often missed on us um, because neither of these are a passive idea. They both have the idea of this kind of trustful anticipation. So, wait means to eagerly anticipate to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Often it has a focus on an anticipation of a future event, right? So so watch me here, okay? When, When the psalmist says wait, this is not what he means. That is not what wait means in this text, right? Here's what wait means. You see the difference? I mean, you can wait in the dentist's office for your root canal. O- or if you're engaged, you can wait for the day of your wedding. World of different connotations in those two uses of the mean wait, right? And the psalmist is not saying the former. He's not saying, I just kind of, yeah, yeah, here, here it comes. No, no, he's saying, I am, I am eagerly anticipating what God is going to do. That's the idea of wait. It's very similar for the word hope, which has to do with looking forward to something. It's not the hope in the sense of, well, I hope it rains today, or I hope I win the lottery. That, that is not what, what, what the idea of when we talk about biblical hope. One author has said it this way when describing the biblical use of the term hope. He says, ordinarily when we express hope, we are expressing uncertainty. But this is not the biblical meaning of hope. The main thing that we need to understand from scripture is that, that biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. He goes on, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There's a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. When the scripture says, hope in God, it doesn't mean cross your fingers. You know, I, I hope it might happen. No, no, what it means is, as in the words of William Carey, expect great things from God. Or as Romans says, Abraham being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. That's hope in the biblical sense, in the biblical use of the term. All right, so let me illustrate it this way. The, both the word hope and wait on God. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever watched a well-trained dog? Right, so is it, is it Thanksgiving every year that they do the big dog show? All right, and, and that's always fun to watch and cheer for whatever your favorite breed is. All right, have you ever watched a well-trained dog? Have you ever watched what they do? they're told to do a trick, they do their trick, and immediately their eyes go back to the owner. What are they doing? They are, in the words of the text, they are waiting on that treat. And they have a hope that it's coming. Now, it might, it might not. That's not, what, that's not their hope. There, there's an expectation. There's an eager expectation. When the, Psalm say, when the psalmist says, my soul waits on God, I hope in him. He's, he's describing that little dog that's going, dim a trick right and and here it comes you know we can expect blessings from god not because we deserve them but because we understand the character of who he is and this is what the psalmist is saying hope is actually the, the, the positive outgrowth of faith you see how faith and hope are linked together where there is faith in god there is hope God's character has fully convinced us that his promises will be fulfilled. And so in verse 6, the psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord. And then he gives this illustration. As those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. I used to work night watch in college. We would work before, because most of us were college students, they did a split shift, that that change shift at 3 a.m., so you'd work the first half, you'd work till 3 a.m., or you'd get up, right, you'll keep me up late, but do not get me up early, all right, so I, on Sunday mornings for one, one semester, I worked the 3 a.m. To, to, to 8 a.m. shift, oh, that was torture, oh my goodness, but I got to see the sunrise every Sunday morning, which was kind of cool, because it was like the reward for being up in the middle of the night. And um, do you know what it's like to be so tired, your body aches with fatigue? All the moms are like, ugh, yeah. <laughs> right? Right, I mean, and that's the way night watch was. I mean, night watch was like this painful, tired. And when that sun came up, and I knew I was about to get off shift, I mean, there was just such a satisfaction I never wondered whether the sun was going to come up. I knew it would. I waited for the sunrise. So the psalmist says, like like a night watchman waiting for that sunrise. Now, in the ancient world, this is even more significant, right? Because they could be attacked. And when that sunrise came up, they may see like this army that's accumulated overnight. And when that sunrise comes up, and they think another night is safely passed, The city is safe. Sunrise has come. And so the psalmist uses this illustration. He says, I'm waiting on that sunrise. It's going to come up. I know it is. And I'm going to be so happy. I'm going to be so satisfied when, when my desire is fulfilled. Nothing can make the sun come up any sooner. You can't hurry it along. And so there is the idea of of awaiting the passage of time, but that's not really the primary meaning of the word. A lot of times when you hear people talk about you know the passages that talk about waiting on God, they're like just you know well be patient. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of that in the word, but the idea is this eager anticipation of what God is going to do. It's not a passivity. It's not I'm just going to lay down and take a nap. You know, so wait till God comes through. Nothing can make the come up sooner. When the dawn comes, the guard rejoices. The city has been saved. You know, we are so tempted to put our hope, to, to wait on, to anticipate so many other things. And when we put our hope on the wrong thing, we're disappointed, aren't we? So we'll put our hope in people, relationships, and they will let us down. We, we put our hope in the security that is provided by, by a good job and a steady income, and, and, and that's all fragile. And so we worry are we going to be able to keep that all together? If that is what our hope is in, we will be disappointed. Sadly, we sometimes put our hope in political structures. Well, we've got to you know, clean the world up and make it a better place and see to it the right people get in office. And, I mean, all of those are valid pursuits, but that cannot be what our hope is in. We'll be disappointed over and over again. But we put our hope in, in our family being, being organized and being structured and, and being disciplined like it ought to be. And, and again, it's a valid pursuit, but, but that can't be what our hope is in. It's says, I hope in God. I look to Him. And, and even if the world seems to be crashing around me, I wait for him like the sun that's going to come up in the morning. I wonder this morning, what are you tempted to trust in? What do you look to for your hope? What is that one thing that you you say, you know, if I had this, life would be good. If I had this thing, or this person, or this amount of money in the bank, or, or this job, or this situation, or this car, or whatever, what is the thing that if you say, I had this, everything's fine. For the psalmist, it's God. And it ought to be for us, too. May we search our hearts this morning and say, okay, Lord, what is it that I'm hoping in more than in you? What is the thing that I'm waiting on more than, than you? And so we rejoice with the psalmist that we can anticipate, we can plan on, we can hope in God's intervention when we call out to Him. We see in verses 7 and 8 that we can have confidence because of His mercy. And so this is all, again, rooted in the character of God. The psalmist is writing to God's covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And we as God's people in this age can hope in the Lord as well. Why? For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. Now, the word redemption, both Old Testament and New Testament, is a tremendously rich theological word. Unfortunately, it is sometimes used stripped of its meaning. In our society, people talk about so-and-so redeemed himself. And what they generally mean by that is they did something really stupid or they did something really bad, but they did something good to make up for it. Right, when Tiger Woods made his comeback, everybody was saying he, he was redeemed himself. No, not in any theological sense. Right? He, he done good. Right? That's what they mean. But the theological meaning is so much richer because when we recognize as the first half of the psalm taught us that we can't do anything to, to save ourselves, redemption is beautiful because redemption is the idea of being bought with a price. It was a word that was used in the context of of buying a slave off of the auction block to set them free, buying something back, and that is what God does, that's what God did for his people Israel, that is what God does when we call out to him in faith and repentance for His, his people today. Redemption is setting someone free by paying the price, Israel knew about that, right, He says, oh, Israel, uh, hope in the Lord. With him there is redemption. I mean, they understood what it meant. They could look back to the Exodus, how God had set them free from Egyptian tyranny. And in verse 8, he says, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, redemption in the New Testament for God's people in this age is is related to, it is linked to Jesus Christ who paid the price that we referred to earlier so that our sins could be remembered no more. They were placed on him. God's wrath was poured out on him, so that all who come to him in faith and repentance and are in Jesus Christ can have forgiveness. They've been set free. They have been redeemed. And again, I ask you this morning, have you been redeemed? If you've not, the application is, is clear. Seek redemption. Seek forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ by first acknowledging your own sinfulness, In your need for a Savior by crying out to Him and pleading for His mercy. Many would have the testimony here this morning that you are redeemed. There's been a time that you have come to Him in faith and repentance. Redemption is that which fuels our our hope. It is the faith in the reality that God is a forgiving God, that He has provided all we needed in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is our hope that gives us gives us uh, the the fuel, the the confidence that we need in this day. It's not just something about the future that will happen one day. It's not just about, well, I get to go to heaven one day. It, It is that which provides us hope even in this life. Paul says if we have hope only in this life, we are most miserable. We have hope both for this life and for the next, and so it informs the way we live. You see, if you live life ho- with hope because of faith in God, it informs the way you live today. A number of years ago, there was a dam that was proposed in a certain valley in New England, and and they they were going to they laid out the plans to build this dam. They purchased the property that was needed, and uh, there was a little town that was in that valley. It was a beautiful little town, and. And everybody loved to keep their property looking nice and everything. And when the decision was made and the properties uh, began to be bought and the the construction of the dam started, an interesting thing happened in that little town. Like the houses started falling into disrepair. And people started not caring for their lawns. And and things began to get run down in the town. Why? Because there's no hope. I mean, the town's not going to be here. And so in kind of a, a kind of reverse way, if we, if we don't have hope, it's going to affect how we live today. If we do have hope, then it's going to affect how we live today. And so how do we think about this psalm? Well, we wait on God. We, we look to Him as our, as our satisfaction, as, as, as what we need. What does that mean practically? Well, when you and I are tempted, it is hope that drives us to say no to the flesh, and to look forward to a greater reward than temporal pleasure. When we're treated wrongly, it is hope that causes us to not return evil for evil, but to have confidence that God will repay justly. When we suffer setbacks or discouragement because things Things don't go our way. Things don't work out as we had hoped they would, as we thought they would. It is biblical hope that energizes us because we are assured that our setbacks are not permanent. God works in His time. And then, particular to this context, when we sin, it is hope that causes us to cry out to God in repentance, knowing that there is forgiveness to be found in His mercy. God's people can have confidence because of His forgiveness. Father, we thank You that we can come before You, not in our own goodness, not in ourselves, but only because of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that is found in Him. I pray, Lord, this morning that even as we acknowledge this reality that we need a Savior, as we cry out to You, May you work in our hearts and continue to remind us of this throughout the week. Just a moment.